Welcome to the Axial Spondyloarthritis Podcast, hosted by me, Jason Sacco. I'm a longtime spondy looking to bring the community closer to give the community a voice. I'll be reaching out to organizations, doctors, nutritionists, and anyone that I think can help increase our spondy quality of life. Enjoy and learn what is available to make your life better. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Axial Spondyloarthritis Podcast. Thanks for joining. I know this took a while. I apologize that I missed last week's episode. Uh, took me uh, went into an issue with editing the show. So again, I'm really sorry about the length of time it took to get the second part out. This week's episode is the final part of the interview with Andrew Boss as we discuss the basically the really nitty gritty of nutrients and and things food that affects or can affect uh, axial spondyloarthritis. Andrew goes in deep on a number of topics, including supplements. We talk about vitamin D, the effects of it, getting it, increasing yours, other supplements that you can take. He mentions a couple that are, one is from Nordic Naturals, the other is WHC. Look in the show notes for those. I have links to them. If you want to support the show, use those links to go to Amazon if you want to order those vitamins that will not affect the price to you it will pay the show back a small commission and i would really appreciate it if you are looking for those supplements or anything from amazon use those links it's truly truly appreciated on top of it some really exciting news someone from somalia downloaded a few episodes of the show that makes the 115th country so it's just amazing Africa as a continent looks like a checkerboard of places where there's been downloads. And so it's really neat to see those little pieces start to fill in. So whoever downloaded the episodes from Somalia, thank you and welcome. Welcome to the family of everybody dealing with axial spondyloarthritis. So enough of me chatting. Please go out and sign up for the newsletter. You can sign up right on spondypodcast.com. And with that, let's get into today's show. Take care lead somebody into if they wanted to try intermittent fasting what would be an optimal way to start for somebody that's never done it before sure and again it's worth footnoting that uh, before trying any form of caloric restriction I recommend just making sure your blood panels are all okay even if it's just intermittent fasting because there are excellent tools and intermittent uh, is obviously a bit more safer than, than water fasting in terms of you know for type 2 diabetics for example who want to try it but it's still worth just making sure everything is hunky-dory. But to answer your question, what I often see is people restricting their eating windows to a certain amount of time. So, for example, let's say you wanted to restrict your window to eight hours of eating. So within an eight-hour interval, you have to have all your meals. And then the remaining 16-hour window is a fasted state. And some people will, once they get used to that, they may decide to narrow it to a six-hour window, where now you're eating within six hours and fasting within 18 hours. And that's the whole concept of intermittent fasting. You're restricting your feeding window. For some people, that translates to skipping breakfast, but it's not exactly like that. <laughs> you wanna, it's still important to ensure you're getting adequate nutrition, unless, you, of course, you decide to try the 5-2 method, which is a different form of intermittent fasting. And that actually involves restricting your calories two days out of the week. You restrict it to 500 calories a day. So that's the other form of intermittent fasting that is often also seen. So there's a time-restricted intermittent fasting, uh, and there's the caloric-restriction intermittent fasting. So 
So depending on what you're into, I, I like the time window better. Um, and sometimes I, I mean, I don't really intermittent fast at all, but, but if I did, I would probably go with a, a time window intermittent fast. That's what I would start out with is gradually restricting the time window. And I've tried that a couple, you know, I do it intermittently, not not as much as I probably should, but it's fairly easy. You pick a, a time frame, you know, a good chunk of that time when you're not eating, you're going to be sleeping anyway. So it's not, you know, it's not like you're trying to get up in the middle of the night to consume calories. So it's it's not really a hard thing to try and implement. Um, but as you said, make sure to talk to your doctor first. Don't just start doing it. Make sure that everything is in line for you to try it so that you'll have some success if needed. But that leads to a more extreme version, which is what you mentioned, not extreme, but just different, which is the water fasting where you can go days. Yes. So before we get into that, I should also mention that there is a lot of science about intermittent fasting that I actually am not well versed in, such as there are, there are some studies that have suggested that there are certain times where the eating window is more effective, like morning versus afternoon. So there's a lot of interesting stuff to it that I'm actually not well versed in. There are a couple of YouTube, and this is the only time I'll actually mention YouTube is if it involves this particular person. A person posts YouTube videos. She goes by the Cheeky Science Show. She's an undergrad, uh, I believe a biochemistry major or, or something like that, and she's very, very well informed about uh, caloric restriction and water fasting, and she talks about it to some extent. So if, if you're looking for a more user-friendly, although yet very biochemical video to go by, looking into her might be useful. Make my footnote about YouTube videos is you can find everything about Everything about anything is on YouTube. So obviously being cautious with your sources there is, is important, but she, the Shiki science is very informative and a bit more user-friendly than Epson. As are many lectures on YouTube, you, there's a lot of within a lot of bad there's a lot of good you just have to know what you're looking for uh, having said that for water fasting so i want to start by saying again you do it the way you're supposed to do it it's perfectly safe that now the, the first one is a big footnote because like i said before if you have liver issues if you have kidney issues the source of ketogenesis and gluconeogenesis takes place in those organs so you really need those organs to be good Otherwise, you could be stressing yourself too much. And so that's why one of the first panels they look at are livers and kidneys. Thyroid also is, needs to be in good condition and the pancreas, obviously. So these are all things that you want to make sure, even before you start looking into the notion of water fasting, that you are okay with. And of course, that doesn't even delve into any the common issues you see in premenopausal women when it comes to iron deficiencies. And you, know, you want to make sure that's that's not a problem. And that also includes the all the other electrolytes. You want to make sure those are off and are more balanced. So after all of that and everything clears, yeah, then you can look into it. But let's start small. So I am actually fasting as we speak. And this is my second day. I'm going to probably refeed tomorrow. This is sort of what I call a little refresher fast, where I'll fast anywhere between 24 to 60 hours. That's anywhere between one to two and a half days. So basically a weekend of drinking only water. And that's what that means when you say water fasting. You're only drinking water. And if you're really snobby about that, you are only drinking water, no tea, no coffee, no none of that other stuff. So, and, and depending on who you ask, there, it, that some fasters can be pretty snobby about that. So there are shorter fasts, which I would say cautiously are considered doable on your own. 
and even up to three days is doable on your own as long as you looked into it and you know what you're doing and your refeeding protocol is you got your grounds. Otherwise, if either you're diabetic, for example, or, or if you're planning on doing extended fast for over three days, then you're best off getting monitored at a supervised fasting facility. And I say that not because there aren't tons of people who are fasting for extended periods of time on their own, by themselves, in their own houses. There are. There are a lot of them. But it's still, it's my duty to say this to, you know, make sure everything is as safe as possible because, you know what, sometimes things do happen. Sometimes things backfire. They backfire for a completely avoidable reason. And one of the famous cases is a gentleman who was actually at a fasting facility, but it's not one I would recommend even to my worst enemy. And unfortunately, he was suggested to go for 32 days water-only fasting. At his refeed, he developed a state of psychosis. Now, why would that have happened? Could it be because of the fact that he was probably being refed the wrong food? Absolutely. Could it be because of the fact that he probably fasted too long, considering the amount of body fat he had in his weight, and he probably ran into a state of starvation ketoacidosis? Yeah, that could be it too. There could be a bunch of different reasons, but the guy did not have any blood panels taken beforehand. He just, some fasting guru in Costa Rica said, yeah, come up and see me. And, and that's it. It wasn't, wasn't really much of a the protocol. So that, that's an extreme case of how something can go terribly, terribly wrong where a guy develops psychosis, hits his head and dies. Yes, that, that's scary. That's obviously not something you want to happen to you or your loved one. At the same time, that's what happens if you do it the wrong way. And it's actually harder than you think to do it the wrong way. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to say you needed to do this the exact right way if this is something you're going to experiment with. Because I'll give you another example. A two PubMed studies who were trying to classify the safeness of water fasting said it had an over 99 point something percent safety with only mild adverse events being like headache and low blood pressure. Uh, something else to watch out for, by the way, if you have hypoglycemia. So these were some of the examples of some of the mild adverse events. And there was one case of hyponatremia. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, hypo under NA means sodium and tremia is a condition. So it's a situation where your body has too little sodium. And that can be serious. Thankfully, he was rushed to the hospital and everything was fine. That's sort of one example. That was one person, I think, out of a couple of thousand. So again, and, and I believe he was like 60 something years old. And that was his 12th day of fasting. So as you can see, it, it differs. And as you can also see, it's kind of hard to mess it up. But you still want to do it the right way to make sure uh, you're doing it as safely as possible. Having said all that, extended fasts, they're quite remarkable. The longest I ever went was at a supervised facility monitored by Dr. Frank Sabatino. And it was for 10 days. And at the time, my blood panels all checked out and my body fat percentage was around 11%. So I already had a low body fat percentage. So it was something I'm not a candidate to fast for more than two weeks, but 10 days is fine. He ensured my blood pressure was good and the ketones were still there. And, and of course, most importantly, he just checked my symptoms. And symptoms are also kind of tricky because not because of anything dangerous, but more because you think something dangerous is happening when it's actually just a, a typical symptom. So some people have actually experienced boils on their third or fourth day of fasting. And it's actually one of the normal, it's unusual, but it's, it's not normal. It, it has happened before and 
there could be a couple of reasons behind that regarding the endocrine system and the releasing of toxins from the stored adipose cells that are now being burnt by 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 uh, ketogenesis. So there there could be a couple of reasons why that happens. It's unusual, but it does happen. But more much more common are mild headaches. I I had a mild headache earlier today. So uh, you'll act you'll, in in some cases, especially if you're not used to it, if you're just starting out, you can develop something called the keto flu, which is more familiar term in the ketogenic diet world, but it actually applies to fast because the transition from a glucose state, also known as fed state, as I mentioned earlier, but fed state implies that your body has enough glucose. Some of it's getting converted straight to energy through the process of cellular respiration. Some of it's getting stored in the liver for glycogen storage. So when the glucose is out, the glycogen gets used and the glycogen runs out. So the transition from the fed state into what's called the fasting state, it can be jarring because your body's transitioning its main source of energy, glucose, and changing it to a ketone-driven state. And that comes with some mild side effects in the first couple of days. So uh, usually the first three or four days is when they're most severe. Second to third day tends to be the hot spot for any of the flu symptoms. And then after that, it go, it, it actually goes away. It, I mean, not completely, but you know, you're, you're still a little bit prone to headaches here and there, but and low blood. Also, as you get deeper into the fast, you're more, your blood pressure becomes more temperamental. And this actually makes sense. It's not a cause for alarm. The deeper you go into a fast, the more reserved your body is getting. So your body is reserving energy. Again, this is a, an age, this is a millennia old tactic the body has used to fight off starvation. So your body doesn't want you to be going to the gym on a five-day fast. It wants you to be sitting your ass on the bed and, and making keeping your state of energy relatively low because the whole notion is you're self-preserving in order to stay alive until your next meal. That was the whole notion of, of fasting. So your body wants to stay in a preserved state, which is why when you get up to do activity, you may notice more fluctuation in your heart rate. Oh, I would imagine because your body starts to, as you said, your body goes into preservation mode and is fighting you to, it's trying to keep you from doing anything is what it's trying to do. Now, there's a second aspect that really gets, makes things interesting. When your body is self-preserving, it also needs to ensure that during this vulnerable period, you're not prone to infection. So your whole immune system begins to recycle itself, a process called autophagy. This really starts unfolding after three days. There are some things are also taking place earlier than that. You, the inhibition of mTOR, for example, some of the production of sirtuins began ramping up, but it really, really ramps up after three days. And um, we start to see breakdown of compromised T lymphocytes. And one study recorded up to 30% of lymphocytes broken down after five days of fasting. By broken down, I mean, well, not really broken down. I think the better word would actually be recycled. So it basically disposes of some of the compromised or senescent cells, and it activates your stem cell production to produce new cells, particularly blood cells. In fact, the one of the most famous researchers on water fasting, Voltar Lungo, he is from Italy, and he this is what he does. He studies the fasting effects. It's remarkable. They showed that on mice, their entire, that it showed a complete restoration of uh, hemopoiesic cells, which are basically your blood cells. It was by reducing the expression of the pre-K pathway. Really interesting effects. And there have been studies that, that have correlated sirtuins, which I mentioned before, they 
or their long name is nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide dependent, which means they require NAD plus for activation dependent of protein deacetylases. They have an important component in regulating cell activity during the fasting state, and they are also been implicated uh, cellular longevity, particularly SIR2 and 6 has been implicated with cellular longevity, and SIR2 and 1 has also been implicated, but in a different way, more down the lines of health, basically living longer versus just being healthier during your time of living. So each sirtuin has a different characteristic. Two, two or three of the sirtuins are in the mitochondria, which actually, yeah, you can have a whole different discussion about what happens to the mitochondria during the fast state, where you're actually seeing mitohormesis and mitophagy, uh, where the mitochondria are starting to recycle. And that also includes, to some extent, the microbiome, where fasting can kind of develop a normalization of the gut bacteria, which is why it's so important what you feed it after the fast. So there's a lot of pathways that are actually studied in the clinical literature that pertain to caloric restriction or fasting that are of great interest, particularly for auto-inflammatory issues. Because if 30% of your lymphocytes are getting recycled, that's substantial. And perhaps it's one of those moments where something gets turned off, or, or at least temporarily often. But anywho, after that 10-day fast, uh, spoiler alert, I did not immediately feel the effect. And, and that's actually really important to mention that because so many people, it's, we, we live in a society that instant gratification where, you know, oh, if it doesn't work, I must be just wrong. Or if it doesn't work, I, if I didn't do it right. That's sometimes true. But in the case of changing something, you're trying to change something that you've had for years in 10 days. That's not exactly how that works. So it's really important to remember that uh, whatever you're doing, uh, the change may not be immediately noticed. Your immune cells, I believe, can live up to 90 days, if I'm not mistaken. Anywhere between 90 and 100 days, I want to say. Some cells live longer. So it takes a lot. It takes time to undo things, or not undo, but to, to be able to create a state of stability and homeostasis where you can finally say, eh, maybe I don't need those medications. And in some cases, you still might. There might be some secondary damage, or you may have an excess of uh, uh, senescent cells that are also producing secretory phenotypes that cause inflammation. Could be a bunch of different things that differ for everybody, but the fundamentals are not are actually somewhat similar. Where we do know that uh, most cases of ankylosing spondylitis are Th17 mediated, and it so happens that T helper cells are substantially impacted during water fasting. So there is something of note there. What exactly that means to each person, it, it might differ a little bit, but that fundamental is there, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's interesting. And I want to switch gears here a little bit because, you know, I appreciate the time that you've given both myself and all the listeners today. One thing that we see over and over, and I th there's a, like nutrition in general, I believe there's a large misunderstanding, but talk a little bit about supplements. It doesn't help with some of the way that they're portrayed in the news. And so I think there's... I, I think a standard across for m most people is a vitamin D deficiency, but then I think when you top that off with those of us with AS, it just gets exasperated. Right. The research, I mean, it's almost a certainty that it is implicated in disease pathogenesis. Whether or not it is an effect of disease pathogenesis, that's a different issue uh, and one that hasn't been fully elucidated. So the folks who are saying they're vitamin D, and this is, an, I know this is Sort of a very picky example, but the folks who say their vitamin D synthesis from the sun is less because of ankylosing spinalitis, well, 
we're not exactly entirely sure of that. We are not sure if it's, again, if vitamin D deficiency causes these diseases or if these diseases cause vitamin D deficiency. Right. It's still an uncertain field. And I in the case of vitamin D, because it's such an important vitamin, although I would recommend supplementation of vitamin D um, and possibly a, a combined with the vitamin K2 supplement if you're not having a lot of leafy greens, I would also recommend getting your sunlight because if there's anything that might be true about of ankylosing spondylitis or other autoimmune issues causing vitamin D deficiency, it actually may have to do with a polymorphism in the genes that was due to the fact that we were not getting enough sunlight in the first place. So it, there's, you can kind of see there's a, there's a nice roundness to that. So I would still recommend, unless you have any pre-existing skin conditions that may be exacerbated by sunlight exposure, still recommend that little bit of sunlight every day or four times a week. And what a lot of people miss about vitamin D, there's actually a lot of rules in order to get the adequate synthesis, which for, for those who want a little bit of biochemical lesson here, the, the synthesis of vitamin D takes place from UVB rays at a very specific frequency. And again, that happens to be expressed by UVB rays. So that means that you can't get your sunlight in the morning. You have to get it when the sunlight is above 45 degrees in the sky. In other words, your shadow's got to be smaller than you. And, and that, that so 10, basically 11 to 2 around the midday hours is the best time to get vitamin D exposure. So when that happens, your skin synthesizes the sunlight to form cholecalciferol which gets synthesized in the liver and kidneys to get, create calcitriol, which is the most bioactive form of vitamin D. And it plays a large role in, in immunomodulation, which is why we, it is believed that it plays a big role in, in autoimmune pathology. But anyway, that, that's actually an important note to make that you need UVB rays. And UVB rays are easily interrupted. Cloud cover interrupts it. Clothes interrupt it. Uh, you have to be at least 70% exposed lying down for at least 10 to 15 minutes, depending on your pigmentation. Uh, and depending on the zenith of the sun. So those are also really important takeaways. And I know this is just one example, but it does happen to be a very important vitamin, so it's actually worth talking about. Right. I'm in northern Florida. The days that it's been sunny and nice and I haven't been working, gone to the pool and just sat out for 25, 30 minutes with the idea that I'm always low in vitamin D it doesn't hurt me to sit out here for 20, 30 minutes. During the winter in the northern states, you won't get a zenith over 45 degrees in the sky. So you're going to have poor UVB penetration. So in, in those cases, supplementation, especially if you already have an autoimmune disease, is absolutely required. But when you're doing the supplementation, there's good vitamin D to use and there's not so good vitamin D. Do I understand that right? Well, uh, truth be told is I haven't done a ton of research on vitamin D3 supplementation because, uh, again, I kind of get it more from the sun, so it's not something I pursued. But I do know that vitamin D3 is the cholecalciferol form, and it, it's best to actually, because, again, another important thing about vitamins, some of them are fat-soluble. So what that means is they're better absorbed with another fatty acid. Vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, so it's better to take it in conjunction with a fatty meal to optimize absorption. There are, to answer your question, yeah, there, I think vitamin D3 is the preferred one, but because it's fat soluble, you know, for one thing, it's probably prone to lipid oxidation. So you'll want to leave it in the fridge. And notion, of course, is you want to take it with food, particularly food that includes some fatty acids. That's good. Would taking it with a fish oil pill be beneficial or not? 
Well, actually, that's a good question because some fish oil supplements actually do include vitamin D. So, so it, it's a well-taken question, and there's probably something good happening there when you're combining it like that. I don't. I take them separately, but I don't know of any anti-antagonist or probably a- antagonistic effects that fish oil has to vitamin D or vice versa. More likely than not, they, they probably work synergistically, which is why I think some supplements, I don't know for sure. I haven't actually, it's a good question. I haven't actually really looked into it, but chances are they, they probably work synergistically. Some fish are actually higher in vitamin D. So it wouldn't be shocking to me if your absorption of vitamin D improved with fish oil and vice versa. But that's actually not what I do. If I really want to improve my absorption for some kind of supplement, then I will usually combine it with food and only usually one supplement at a time if I can. So for fish oil, for example, I'm going to have it with some walnuts and avocado, some good fatty food. And that's assuming I'm not having fish that day. I'm having fish that day. I don't really need the fish oil. Another example would be for some of the antioxidants that are very commonly taken nowadays that are very poorly soluble. And these include turmeric and resveratrol. Um, Both of them are very poorly soluble in water and they have very poor bioavailability. So you need to actually find a way to increase its bioavailability. For resveratrol, for example, truth be told is your original resveratrol form, the transresveratrol form is, is not very good. And I don't recommend it as a supplement. On the other hand, the methylated form of resveratrol, which is called pterostilbene, is a superior formant because it has a methyl group, which I believe two methyl groups actually, which means that it is fat soluble. And it means that it could be combined with the fatty meal and uh, the bioavailability improves. And its functions are almost identical to resveratrol. In fact, the actual name of resveratrol is something like 3.4.5 transhydroxystilbene. Stilbene being a key word is a stilbenoid. Stilbenoids are very potent antioxidants. They're not found in a lot of places. Only grapes and blueberries have them. Grapes, they're very low um, in resveratrol. And as we discussed, it's not really bioavailable in its bioavailable form, which I have bad news for all you wine drinkers. The amount of resveratrol you're getting is negligible. Yeah, I, I, you hear that a lot. And I, I just like, yeah, I know. I'll let you keep thinking that way. But no, the alcohol is <laughs> still poisoning you. <laughs> but um, that's one example of a myth and something that I think folks should look into more because it's true. Resveratrol is a very potent, it's actually what's called an NRF2 agonist. It's been looked at a lot. It's a very worthy exploration of finding NRF2 agonists agonist that are bioavailable to the body, like pterostilbene. Um, pterostilbene activates CERT1, which, as we mentioned before, is NAD plus dependent. So for the older folks listening, they actually, if they wanted to take a pterostilbene or they want to finish up their resveratrol supplementation, and then maybe transition to pterostilbene. You actually want to combine an NAD supplementation too because NAD decreases as a, with age. The form of NAD plus to take is also very controversial right now. There, right now, it seems there, there seems to be some strong evidence for M- NM, nicotinamide mononucleotide, I believe. But still, it doesn't seem to express the pathway that we exactly want, but we still get something out of it. So it's still not a bad idea to take if you want to get some of the effects of the stilbenoids that you're su- supplementing with. But at the same time, it's worth mentioning that the research is still, we're not sure what, which form of an NAD plus is the best one to take to optimize this path. So that's one example. Several other NRF2 agonists that are very commonly taken as supplementation, one of them is curcumin, the active turmeric ingredient. And curcumin is notoriously 
bad. Uh, just not good to, it's synthesized quickly by the liver and removed from the body. It's very, very poor bioavailability. Although there are some interesting studies that discuss whether or not an Indian food, for example, whether or not we're, we're, they're seeing the benefits of turmeric or the benefits of the degradation of turmeric into uh, simpler molecules that actually do have some positive effects. So really interesting stuff about turmeric. So even if it's not, if you can't get the active form of curcumin, you still, uh, having turmeric in your meals may still be offering you different forms of benefit. But in terms of curcumin activation, it's a pretty lengthy science. Black pepper is one of those things that actually increased bioavailability by four to tenfold. And although that sounds great, it's still a relatively small percentage. So another other things to do are taking it with fatty meals. Some supplement companies have placed curcumin in emulsions and the activity of the emulsions actually may help assist with bioavailability. These are emulsifiers like egg yolks or more commonly lecithin in the form of soy or sunflower lecithin. And I actually have soy lecithin granules that I mixed in with my turmeric along with a little bit of olive oil, black peppercorn to sort of stimulate that bioavailability. It's still sitting in my fridge. It's actually kind of a paste now. Now, how do you ingest it? You, do you drink it like that? No, I put some of the paste in the smoothie. Got it. Okay. Uh, I have a smoothie every morning and, and there's added benefit to that too because some of the a lot of the flavonoids in the fruits also stimulate curcumin bioavailability. Especially quercetin has been also studied as a potent activator of curcumin bioavailability. And actually, I put some quercetin. I have a quercetin supplement, so I put a little bit of that in there as well. So it's very pasty and yellow. Hmm, interesting. So that's one way. Yeah, that's one way. I it's kind of a ritual. So if you're not really into that kind of thing, you can always go the supplement route. But it's important to know how they're doing it because here's a key takeaway with supplements. And I guess. This is probably the point I should have begun with. The key thing with supplements is they're not regulated. I could fill out a form in a couple hours and technically being able, I would be able to start marketing a supplement. So there's not much FDA regulatory oversight or supplementation, hardly any at all, really. So as a result is in sort of this wild west of supplements where some are good, some are really good, and then some are really bad. I know they just really just watch for blatant false statements but outside of if you're not making some crazy false statements they'll let a lot slip through they do in fact some of the supplements don't even use the ingredients that they say they do so and it's more common than we're comfortable with to be honest uh, or just issues of the supplements being of going bad of uh, fish oil is actually an excellent example of this where a study in 2014 found up to 70% of fish oil supplements exceeded or were about to meet the lipid oxidation standards that are set by an organization called International Fish Oil Society, I think. It's IFOS for short. They're an international society that write, that sets standards for the oxidation of fish oil, also known as lipid peroxidation. And they measure it in certain units. One of them is called the peroxide value, which is the measure. It basically symbolizes the amount of oxidation taking place. And then there is the anecedine value, I may not be pronouncing that right, which measures the amount of oxidation has already taken place. And they combine those two measurements to create a Toltox value. And it's all based off of a certain number. Toltox value of 26 or lower is okay. And 26 or higher is means the oxidation may be taking place at a accelerated rate. So when I say that 70% of supplements either exceed or are about to meet that, that's the value that's being referred to. 
to tell tox value. So most fish oil supplements that are good quality will have their products certified by IFOS. And then the ones that don't, well, you may want to stay away from. And this actually, I hate to say this, but this includes a lot of prenatal vitamins. A lot of the prenatal vitamins use docosahexaenoic acid isolate or DHA isolate. And there's several problems with that, not the least, which is that DHA has, I believe, four or five double bonds. It's very unstable, which makes it very prone to oxidation. So, and then on top of that, just, I have not found, a lot of these prenatal pills that come out add very questionable ingredients and true, true people, I don't think they're very, very well formatted. So I wouldn't trust those with a 10 foot pole anyway, in terms of DHA content, but. Hmm, interesting. The other being that, DHA isolates, and this applies to anything, not just prenatals, but anything. DHA isolates can actually uh, cause a reverse feedback mechanism, where if you're only having DHA, then it could actually inhibit the activity of the elongase that converts the EPA ultimately into DHA. So, the, which is why I, I always recommend if you're going to go fish oil route, make sure, A, you get a good one. The two I recommend are Nordic Naturals and WHC Unicardio, both of which have been IFOS certified and both actually had several other third-party lab reviews, including Labdoor, which is one that's used a lot in the States. And the Labdoor review for Nordic Naturals was a little bit lower because they found a little bit higher amount of oxidation, but it was still well below the standard. For WHC, very, very low oxidation for both the third-party lab review, which is why I'm trying them right now. But Nordic has been involved in a ton of clinical trials, so their clinical results speak for themselves. So either way, you can't go wrong. As long as you're buying them in capsule form, and which I think both of them, they only offer them that way for both products, and as long as you're keeping them refrigerated and using within three to four months. That's how prone they are to oxidation. This goes back to, I mean, this gets into science. The reason why they're so unstable is because they're double bonds. So a little fun fact, uh, in case you're wondering why butter and coconut oil are solid in room temperature, because they're saturated fatty acids and they predominate that particular fatty acid profile. Whereas the more liquid oils in room temperature, they have a higher amount of oleic acid or omega-6 fatty acid. These are now, you're now entering unsaturated fatty acid territory and unsaturated simply means that they have at least one double bond. In the case of monounsaturated, they have one double bond. In the case of polyunsaturated, they have two or more double bonds. And so the more double bonds an unsaturated fatty acid has, the more unstable it is, which is why it gets so it gets rancid so easily. And especially in its bioactive form like DHA, they get oxidized very, very easily, especially in heat, which is why I never, ever, ever recommend cooking fatty fish in a high heat profile or using oil to cook it with. It's a terrible idea. It should always be slow cooked with vegetable broth and some lemon and, a, and any other thing that may inhibit the oxidation. Lemon is very, lemon has a lot of antioxidants. They don't just use it for nothing. You know? <laughs> There's actually some chemistry behind that too, where the, some of the antioxidants in lemon actually inhibit the oxidation of, of the food that it's cooked with. So fish being one example. So when you say that that's, I didn't mean to cut out, that's the salmons, the fatty fishes that way, cook them in a, a small amount of vegetable broth and lemon? Yeah, uh, you can add a little bit of, you can add a couple of grape tomatoes to it and, and uh, which have, you know, you're getting some extra quercetin. 
you're, you can add a couple little pinch of salt, and, and but but more importantly, ensuring that the pan does not dry up. You always want some kind of liquid to be in that pan when you're cooking with fish or really anything. And that's the reason, that's a different, there's, aside from the oxidation that takes place, there's also something called advanced glycation end products that increase substantially when something is cooked, especially in the absence of water or in the, in the presence of oil. So it's something worth bearing in mind. I mean, I love salmon cooked in oil. I love the crispiness of the skin, but it's actually not really helping. So I stopped doing that and I'm doing low heat cooking. I'm keeping the lid covered so it cooks faster with the steam and just kind of minimizing any kind of and adding the broth, the veggie broth, which also has some antioxidants in it and the lemon, which will also help it from, you know, oxidizing quicker and doing whatever doing it just making it the least invasive method of cooking something to get the most out of it people could also just try getting smoking it which their cold smoking involves no heat and there is some oxidation but if you're you know coating it with lemon or something then it's kind of minimal so or just buying it from whole foods i suppose which that's some good smoked fish varieties. Interesting. Yeah, and, and interesting stuff for sure. And we kind of sideways out of fish the supplementation a little bit, but that's because fish oil is a it's it, it's a big it's important. It's important to balance omega three sixes. That's why people get fish oil. But there's a lot of misunderstanding and how people don't realize how easy it is to oxidize fatty acids. And when that happens, you don't get the benefits. In fact, sometimes in some studies they've shown that you get adverse that events from having excess oxidized fatty acids. So it's really important bearing in mind. Yeah, and it can honestly become quite overwhelming. And that's why I appreciate you've got such an in-depth knowledge, um, self-taught, self-learned. So it's it's completely doable if somebody's willing to put in the time and the effort. I, I think we'll, at this point, I want to thank you for your time. You know, I, we could go on forever and I don't want to overwhelm people to a degree, but at the same time, you're accessible for anybody with questions. You're quite active on, on a number of the forums on Facebook. So people could easily reach out to you there and I'm assuming engage and have conversations. You're not hiding from anybody, so to speak. So you're, you're readily accessible to talk and, and like to talk on this. So to anybody listening, Andrew's got a large amount of posts out there with a far more in-depth than just this conversation we've had today. So... I really thank you for your time. Oh, it's, I mean, it's my pleasure. And, you know, we haven't even gotten to sprouting yet, you know, so there's lots of things to discuss. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a lot of topics, you know, and I'm sitting here listening and I'm going, this nutrition side of it, I know so little about it. You know, I, I obviously understand the function of the less refined foods, the, the, the better. But when you start to get in the macro level of it and in the micro level of it um, and, and delve deep into it, I'm such a novice at it. It's, it's embarrassing. And so well, it's not, it's not embarrassing because here, the problem is there's a, it's worth noting that there is a disconnect between the doctor's office and what you're eating. And that, and that's not me pointing the fingers at the doctors. It's me saying that the medical field has somewhat veered toward the notion of pharmaceutical drugs. And they're just now starting to think more about health, which is nice to see. But, you know, most of these people are getting three credits or six credits in their medical degree in nutrition. So truth be told is they're probably going off a lot of the information that you or I would, or maybe the newest fad, which a couple of years ago was FODMAP diets. So there's always going to be this 
bad and there's always a side of science to it. But in reality, the science is there's more to say than what is being presented. An excellent example of this is Stephen Gundry's plant paradox. Is he's discussing a topic that is notable to discuss, but he addresses it in a completely wrong way. His followers who get his lectin shield supplements realize that most lectins are inactivated with heat. That would be a, a big uh, disappointment to his sales. So as you can probably tell, I'm not a fan of so, uh, <laughs> but but just gives you an example of there's there's a there seems to be this disconnect and it also seems that doctors are slowly getting their way back there but they don't always there may be some conflicts of interest involved in some of these cases like like Gundry or or maybe we're just not getting the full story and that's again I'm not necessarily blaming the doctors because there's also when you're researching a lot of this stuff most of these guys are not medical directors they are doing extended research like you know they're they're white coat white coat labs you know that that kind of science and it is very gets very deep when you're looking at some of these pubmed studies like you're basically reading a biochemistry textbook so there's some disconnects that haven't really been fully addressed and i'm not blaming anybody but it unfortunately has resulted in a patient disconnect with the power of what you're eating and what you're, and also equally important what you're not eating or and we can even take that further eating versus not eating as a science so there's so much to say about it and unfortunately it passes by a lot of us it used to pass it used to pass me too where i and and everyone goes in their phases i did go through a vegan and vegetarian phase for a while and eventually i did i felt that well i wanted to bring back fish so because the right kinds can actually help me stabilize my ratio. So everyone has their phases and there's a lot of trial and error involved in it. But the, any discouragement that comes from results you may not be seeing is either because you're not letting it give enough time or maybe there's more to the story than what you or even, dare I say, your doctor may fully up. Well, and, and that's why I think it's so key to, at a minimum, before you do anything, you've got to talk to your doctor to get a baseline once you have that baseline established and know your your sugars, everything, you can then start to do eliminations, add things in, remove the, you know, and find out what starts to trigger your AS and, and ways that you can try to help control it. Well, with that, Andrew, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. The amount of knowledge that you shared is incredible. So I really, again, appreciate your time. My pleasure. Uh, I hope we can do this again soon. Yeah, it was a great. You take care. All right.